Amen. Please be seated. I kind of feel like I'm standing on hallowed ground right now. Gosh, the Lord is amazing. Uh, if you have children who are um, elementary age, they can head out these doors and head to our wonderful Vine Kids teaching. If you have a middle school aged kid, they can head out the back right here and they will have a great time with, with Mr. Greg out there. He's teaching through the book of Romans with middle schoolers. You want to, I mean, that's amazing. Wow. So we have been, we took a break. We're going through the book of John. We're in week, I don't know, 60 something. And uh, we have not been in a hurry. We took a break for three weeks to talk about, um, while we looked at, our need to build out space. Treb went and he did this three-part series called The One, where we looked at, you know, why, it is, why is it that we do what we do and looking at the church that God wants us to become. And we looked at that we do everything for the glory of the one true God, for the nurture of the one true church, and for the salvation of the one person through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it sets these really great foundational truths that we re-anchor to all the time as we go and move forward into whatever the Lord has for us in this church. Today we're going to jump back into the book of John, and we'll be in chapter 19. And we have uh, 95 verses left in this book. So <laughs> if you're keeping count, we, we, we might be here for a long time. So, But uh, we were trying to look at finishing before Advent, which is in six weeks, if you can believe it, six weeks. So, um, but there's just absolutely literally no way because last time Treb went through three verses and I'm going to manage to get through four today. So, um, but you know, we're not in a hurry. And so there is no race. Whoever gets to the end of John first doesn't win uh, a sucker or whatever. So we're, uh, we're just going to keep trucking along. And the, the context of this, remember that, so in John 19, Jesus has now been betrayed by He's been betrayed by Judas. He's been be, uh, arrested by, by the Jews. He's been brought up and he has had a sham of a trial in front of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling party of the time. And they have convicted him or found him guilty of blasphemy. So because of that, they want to kill him. Now, they have no legal right to do so because they are under Roman governance. And so Pilate is the governor, the prefect of that area. And so he has to... Uh, crucify people. He has to give that order. The Jews can't do it. So they have brought Jesus up before Pilate because they want him to say, okay, I'll crucify him. That's what they want. So in chapter 18, Jesus goes before Pilate and we got all this backstory about literally the hatred between Pilate and the, and the Jews. When it says the Jews in John, he's talking about uh, the Jewish ruling party, the, the chief priest and the members of the Sanhedrin and, and those who were um, religiously and, and culturally the, the rulers of the Jewish people at the time. He has been, Jesus has been brought before Pilate. There were charges brought against him. And then instead, Pilate found no cause to convict Jesus. He found no reasonable or logical uh, uh, reason to, to punish him because of the charges brought against him. So he was going to release them, but instead he said, okay, you guys can remember he, he got to choose from between Barabbas and Jesus, and they chose Jesus to release Barabbas to them. And then in the beginning of chapter 19, Pilate, Pilate takes Jesus and he has him flogged, which means that he was uh, 
uh, he, was, he was whipped, and uh, not just whipped, but it was, um, the, his back was flayed open, and a lot of the skin was taken off of his back. It was a punishment that that punishment alone could cause death. And then the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and a, 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 a purple robe and put it on him, mocking him and punching him in the face, calling him the king of the Jews. Hail, king of the Jews. And so Jesus, this is early morning still on Good Friday. Early morning. And Jesus has now been brought before Pilate. He's now been flogged. He has now had this uh, crown of thorns shoved on his brow. He has this mocking purple robe put on him. And that's where we end up in chapter 4. But before we jump in there, let's, let's pray. And then we'll jump into the text. Lord, we love you. Uh, honestly, Lord, I would rather not talk. I'd rather just sit up here and sing for the rest of the time. Um, thank you for, for music, that we can worship you in song that we can play notes and create music and, 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 and sing to our Lord and our King. I thank you that you are the way and the truth and the life. And that there is no other way into heaven except through you. No other way to the Father. Thank you for what you have done for us. Thank you for this gospel of John. Lord, we come to it with, um, with a heavy heart walking into a very terrible passage in scripture that is both terrible and yet glorious and so we but we do i feel like we're walking on on holy ground as we talk about these things as we worship you today and we just come to you with reverence lord jesus teach us today i pray for my brothers and sisters i pray that they would learn what it is you want them to learn today would you teach us by your Holy Spirit? Correct us where we're wrong. Rebuke us. Encourage us with great patience and careful instruction. Would you do that, Lord Jesus? I pray for myself that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. May you be glorified, Lord Jesus, in this time. Thank you for who you are. In your risen name we pray. Amen. I uh, come up here on verse 4, and it's easy to read through this stuff and sort of get um, oh, clinical about it or maybe academic. I don't, I don't like to do that. If you've never seen the, the Passion of the Christ, it's a really, I mean, you can talk all about it all you want, but it, it is a great job of, of putting in reality what Jesus went through, the abuse that he endured. I've only seen it once. I can't bring myself to see it again yet, but... From the time Peter denies him, I just cry the rest of the movie. But it's, uh, it's an incredible, powerful picture of things. And the idea is that Pilate is now in his, in his palace, and Jesus is in there with him. He's now been flogged, and the Jews are, are outside because they won't enter his palace because they don't want to uh, dirty themselves as they plan the, the death of the Messiah. And in verse 4 it says, Once more Pilate came out and said to the Jews, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him or that I find no guilt in him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, here is the man. I'm in John 19, 4, if I haven't said that already. Pilate said to them, here is the man. 
And as soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. And the Jews insisted, We have a law, and according to that law, he must die, because he claimed to be the Son of God. So Pilate comes out and he says to them, he brings them out. And it appears that Pilate comes out and he talks to them before Jesus comes out. And he says, look, all right, I find no basis for a charge against him. Your Bible might say I find no guilt in him. This is, um, this is forensic language. As in, uh, he is looking at, uh, uh, he is investigating a crime. He is investigating an accusation against Jesus. He's using a process that they used. And he can find no, no logical or reasonable or plausible reason to punish Jesus because of the accusation that they've laid before him. He can find no charge against him. And then Jesus comes out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and he would have absolutely been beat to a pulp at this time. Not only had he been struck in the face, but his back would literally, he would be bleeding from his back. He is terribly weak at this point. And he comes out, and, and Jesus, in this these four verses says absolutely nothing. He's standing there silent, mocked, and Pilate just points to him and says, here's your guy. Here's your rebel. I mean, is he going to do anything else anymore? Pilate does not. Pilate wants to let him go. He desperately wants to let Jesus go. And he, he's taking him and he's pointing him out and said, listen, you wanted me to kill him. Well, I flogged him. He might die from that. He's been beat to tar. We're mocking him. Here's your king. Go, go, take him. Is, are, are you happy now? And look at verse 6. As soon as the chief priest and their officials saw him, they shout, mercy, mercy. No. What do they shout? Crucify. They shout it. They're not just murmuring going, hey, we should probably. It is a crowd that is fervently shouting to Pilate to crucify Jesus crucify crucify they all know exactly what that means there is no uh, hidden agenda here with them other than they want jesus to die and pilate answers and he says you take him and crucify him pilate knows that they can't do that he they did not have the legal authority to crucify someone only the roman governor government government could do that and the jews know that and so Pilate is just, he just cannot help but sticking it to him. And he says, fine, you take him and crucify him, even though I know that you can't. He's just rubbing it in their face. He says, as for me, I find no basis, he says it again, for a charge against him. It's the third time that he said it. He says it in 1838, I find no basis for a charge against him. He says it here in 1904, I find no basis for a charge against him. He says it here in verse 6, I find no basis for a charge against Jesus. I find no guilt in him. This pagan governor, who is not a man of God, can very clearly see that Jesus has done nothing wrong. He's done nothing wrong. If he had done something wrong, Pilate would crucify him. It's not like he's a super nice guy who hates to crucify people. Pilate was really mean. He had crucified many people. But he sees nothing in Jesus that would give him a basis to punish him for the charge against him. Then it says the Jews insisted. 
They said, well, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die. See, under Roman rule, they would come in and they would be the governing uh, body over the people. But the Jews would be able to live by their own laws in, in large part because it kept people happy. And they could kind of, in many ways, run their own government. The Sanhedrin could still run, they could still have their religious life, and they could still have their laws. And so when they say, we have a law, he's saying, well, you take him and crucify him, knowing that they can. And they say, listen, we have a law, which means that you have to let us do something. And they're technically right. In Leviticus chapter 24, anyone who takes the name of the Lord, uh, takes the name of the Lord uh, uh, in, in vain, anybody who blasphemes the name of the Lord is supposed to be stoned. And how stoning worked is the whole community would come. They would put their hands on this person. They would transfer guilt to him. Then they would shove them off of a place and they would throw rocks on them until they died. That's in Leviticus chapter 24, which is a beautiful, marvelous book. If you're ever looking to study Leviticus, I encourage it. I'm not joking, it's really incredible. Uh, it's about God's holiness and it's about how uh, separate we are from him as a holy God and how he was giving the nation of Israel instructions for how they could live in, in, in holy communion with him. And we're kind of distanced from this and this idea that if someone blasphemes the name of God, that someone comes up and said, I am the son of God, that under the law they were supposed to be killed, okay? Thrown down with large rocks until they crushed their head until they died, okay? Why? Because God really is God, and we are not supposed to blaspheme his name. So when they say we have a law, and according to that law he must die, they're, they're not lying, they said, because he claimed to be the son of God. That... Do you see what they say? Their charge against him is because he what? He claimed to be the son of God. So the only reason that that is blasphemy is if what? If he claims to be the son of God and isn't. But Jesus claims to be the son of God and is. So, but he's totally innocent. And they know it. And Pilate knows it. So it brings me, it kind of brought me to these two questions this week. One is this, is why were they so anxious? Why were they so forcefully wanting to crucify Jesus? It's not like they're going around back channels and writing letters and trying, no. They're standing, there is now a mob forming in front of Pilate, and they're screaming to him, crucify him. They, I want, we want you to murder him, and we want to watch it. That's what they're saying. We want you to inflict on him the most painful death that any of us can imagine. Why do they want that? And the only thing I can come up with is because Jesus threatened their own self-righteousness. He has come to them and he has said, listen, what you're doing is not okay. You're elevating yourself. You're making your own rules to elevate yourself, to make yourself right before God. You cannot do that. He is coming and he has claimed to be the Son of God. The entire first half of this book, um, John chapter 2 through 12, is remember it's called the Book of Signs. It is Jesus declaring his deity, declaring his sonship, and then uh, proving that with miraculous things, with, with uh, uh, healings and, and raising people from the dead. But their own pride and self-righteousness, they can't see it. Because self-righteous people they care nothing about justice nothing about justice the only thing self-righteous people care about is their own self-righteousness can they maintain it 
and that other people know that they look righteous. That's what self-righteous people are concerned about. But pride and self-righteousness blind us to the work of God. These Jews, were, they were blind to the work of God because of their own pride and self-righteousness. One of our kids this week asked us, why did Jesus, excuse me, back up, why did uh, Lucifer, don't want to mix those two up, why did Lucifer think, how does he think that he can win against God? Why would he do these things? The only answer is searing, blinding pride. It is his own pride that brings about his downfall. And it is the Jews' own pride that brings about this. Now I realize that in the great plan of God that Jesus is going to be crucified. And I know that there is a mystery in here. But that these Jews freely chose to do what they're doing within the plans of God's providential goodness and his plan of his redemptive plan of humanity. That they freely chose to do this. The only thing that I can think of is prideful self-righteousness. It's brutal. So why, did they, why were they so anxious to crucify Jesus? Prideful self-righteousness. And that's it. The second question I have is, why is it important that Jesus is innocent? He said it three times. Pilate himself has said it three times. And he's not exactly, Pilate is not this blameless guy. He's just the Roman governor at the time. And he can clearly see, Pilate's wife can clearly see, that Jesus is not at all guilty. He's not guilty in any way, shape, or form. So why is it important? And now we're going to take a bit of a deep dive, so hold on with me. Um, we're going to dig into some of the theology that's behind all of this. And it's important because good theology affects how we live. Same with bad theology. Just, just ask um, any cult member, okay? Bad theology affects how we live. So, Jesus is absolutely innocent, and it's going to lay the groundwork for something called the, the substitutionary atonement or his propitiatory sacrifice. So those are big words, so hold on. Um, a propitiation means that, that God was wrathful and that the sacrifice of Jesus... Um, um, extinguished that wrath because it was no longer necessary. It was poured out fully upon Jesus, that his wrath was propitiated. It was satisfied. Substitutionary atonement, substitute, like there's, you take one thing out and put another thing in. An atonement meaning a covering. So like if you think back to the, the Ark of the Covenant, back from Raiders of the Lost Ark, remember, don't ever open it if you're a Nazi, but if, or anybody apparently, but the, the Ark, inside of the Ark was the, uh, the, the, the tablet of the testimony, right? The, the Ten Commandments. And that Ten Commandments is a, a, it is rules for instruction, but it is also a judgment against mankind because we can't keep it. And it condemns us. So between the condemnation of the law and the glory of God, the Shekinah glory of God, stands what? An atonement cover. Remember these angels are over it? There was an atonement cover. It covered the judgment so that the glory of God would be there. Jesus is an atonement, but not a cover. Remember what John said about Jesus? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus came not merely to cover our sin, like all these lambs and goats and bulls had done before, but to literally take it away, to take away the condemnation that was on us because of our sin. We're going to jump into three passages, one in Romans chapter 3, one in Isaiah 53, and one in Hebrews 9. 
which are, um, these are like big passages. So we're going to skip through them in about 10 minutes. So just uh, hold on to the reins. And um, we're going to go through like a, I don't know, like a two years worth of theology in about eight or nine minutes. So, but we're going to skip over and hopefully it will all make sense by the time we get to the end. We're answering the question, why is it important that Jesus was innocent? So first, turn with me to Romans chapter 3, verse 21. Romans 3, 21. And uh, Romans, of course, is trying to answer the question, how can unrighteous man live righteously? What happens there? How does that happen? So in 3.21, Paul starts with this. But now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness comes from God and is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. 1 Peter 3.18 says that, that Christ Jesus died once for all the just for the unjust to bring us to God. And that the Lord was that just and righteous atonement. He was utterly perfect. How is it that unrighteous humans can have a relationship with a righteous God? Well, something else had to happen. And that righteousness is through faith to all who believe in Jesus. Why? Because all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. So that Jesus is the perfect atonement for humanity because there is no human who could do the atonement because Jesus's death would have if he was in, an imperfect human he would merely be dying to atone for his own sin but now God's presented him as a sacrifice of atonement and he did it to demonstrate his justice so as to be just to remain just because it is who he is and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. He is not only the just one, but he is, because he is just, his actions are just in justifying those who have faith in Jesus. Okay, so first, Jesus is the perfect atonement. It, it matters that he is a perfect atonement because no one else could make the atonement except for Jesus because we would just be atoning for our own sin. See, I could go up to God and I could say, all right, Game on. I'm a sinner. I know. I know the wages of sin are death. So here's what I'm going to do. I know there's an eternal life, I think. So we're gonna, I'm going to die for my own sin so that in the eternal life, I can live without judgment. I'll give up this life for that one. Deal? But where does that leave the rest of us? See, you had to have someone who was a perfect sacrifice. Someone who had not sinned, who was unblemished. And that's where we're going to go jump into Isaiah 53. Not only was he the perfect atonement, that that sin had been removed and uh, given righteousness was put in its place. That language for that is the imputation. Our, our sin was taken away and Christ's righteousness was imputed upon us. So now we're in Isaiah 53 verse 4. Isaiah 53 4. 
Beautiful passage. Gosh. In verse 4 he says, Surely he, talking about Jesus, the Messiah, is written 700 plus years before Jesus. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Why? Because verse 6 says, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We needed a substitutionary atonement. We needed someone to substitute in our place, to make the atonement in our place. And that is what happens in Isaiah 53. Verse 6 says, we all like sheep have gone astray. Very similar to what Romans says, all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. Everybody, there isn't an exception for anyone. We've all gone astray and done what? Turned to his own way. Oh, Man, if that could describe me better, it would be impossible. That is my struggle daily, is that I just want to turn to my own way. But look what it says in the end of verse 6. The Lord lays on him who was perfect, who was faultless, who was innocent, the iniquity of us all. We needed a perfect substitute. And that substitute was Jesus. Because any other substitute would merely be paying for their own sin. But Jesus paid for the iniquity of us all because he was guiltless. So he has a perfect atonement, meaning that our sin has been taken away. He has a perfect substitute, meaning he died in our place. And then we're going to go to Hebrews chapter 9. You guys holding up there? I know it's like drinking from a fire hose, so just, just hold on. Um, you'll get wet and it'll be okay. It'll cool you off. So just plant your feet. All right, so here's 9, 11 in, in Hebrews, chapter 9, verse 11. By the way, if all of this is a lot, just go and study Isaiah, then study Romans, and then study Hebrews. And you'll be good. Take a while. There's a few chapters in there, but you'll get it um, one thing at a time. So 9-11 says, When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made. That is to say, not a part of this creation. So the idea being this contrast between the, uh, the, high, the high priest, the earthly high priest, the, Le- the Levitical priest that, that ran the old covenant, right? They, they came in and they, they went through a, a tabernacle that was man-made or a, a temple that was man-made in order to, to make atonement for the people. But in verse 12, he, Jesus, did not enter by the means of blood, uh, excuse me, means of the blood of goats and calves. So a human high priest would have to sacrifice an animal in order to enter into the high place and enter into the holy place. But he entered the most holy place once for all. How? By his own blood, having attained eternal redemption. Because the blood of goats and bulls, and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. So these, 
the priesthood had blood and these ashes sprinkled on them to make them clean so that they could go into the Holy of Holies and not be destroyed by God's holiness. But they were outwardly clean in verse 13. In verse 14, how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself, how? Unblemished to God. God wanted a, a, a lamb or a goat or a bull. He wanted an unblemished one, not a spotty one or a broken one. He wants the best one. So Christ comes and he offers himself, how? Utterly unblemished. Can you imagine actually being unblemished? Do you know that the Bible says that you are? Isn't that amazing? Do you know how you get that cleanliness? It's Jesus. That's why when we sing a song about Jesus, it fills your whole being with wonder. He offered himself unblemished to God's, God to do what? To cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death. I am incapable of cleaning my own conscience. I need something outside of myself to do it. See, Jesus, as an unblemished sacrifice, was able to come to God and achieve for us a perfect atonement, a perfect substitution, and now he is a perfect high priest. The high priest intercedes between God and a sinful people. And Jesus stands between us and the Father as a high priest, continually interceding on our behalf. And he cleanses our consciousness from our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we can go ahead and, and live our best life now, right? What does it say? So that we may serve the living God. Two thousand years ago, when a pagan prefect pronounced the innocence of Jesus, it matters. It matters because we needed a perfect atonement. It matters because we needed a perfect substitution. It matters because we needed a perfect high priest to continually intercede for us today. See, the first two, the atonement and the substitution, that is how we get cross from death to life. So if you have not been, if you are on this side of the equation, so to speak, and you have never trusted in God for your salvation, you are still under condemnation. I don't want that to be true. The Bible says it's true, and so it's true. You're under condemnation. But by faith in this atoning sacrifice, you move from death to life. Hallelujah. It's the gospel. It's glorious, and it's wonderful, and it is freedom to everybody who has ever felt the weight of their own sin. And if you are here feeling the weight of your own sin, never having felt the freedom of an atonement and a sacrifice of Jesus, come to the Lord today and be free. Jesus as high priest functions for the believer. Because I don't know about you, but I still sin. I have yet to have even a single day that I haven't sinned, much less a week. If you add up all my junk for a week, need a really big like trailer to haul it it's not i wish i could say that since i came to christ in the 20 some odd years since i've done that that as i've come now that i've learned to no longer sin i can say that there's been a lot of progress okay the lord has done a lot 
but he's got a whole lot of work left to do. And that is where Jesus as my high priest comes in. But he is not an earthly high priest. Because he was innocent, he becomes an eternal high priest. Why? Because it's who he is. Jesus is eternal in his very nature. He is perfect in his very nature. And so the whole concept of John is the incarnation of Jesus. That God, the God-man of Jesus, that he is God with skin on, that he is 100% man and 100% God. And Christ died for our sins and accomplished all of this for us. That as my high priest, he intercedes for me. He forgives, he guides, he teaches, he leads, he corrects, he rebukes, he encourages, he walks with us. So what difference does all this make? Um, well, one, it doesn't leave a whole heck of a lot of room for pride in our lives anymore. In Psalm 53, the Lord looks out on the earth to see if there's anyone who is righteous, anyone who does good, and he finds no one. That is no longer true. Do you understand me? Because he can look out and he sees the imputed righteousness of his own perfect son. When he sees me, he does not see the sin which separates me from him and condemns me to eternal hell. He sees the imputed righteousness of a perfect atonement, of a perfect substitution, and a perfect high priest interceding on my behalf. That is the reality of the Christian life, and that is grace. Legalism fights against all these other things to say, no, I've got to make myself better, but we can't. Grace says you could never make yourself better, but God accomplished all of this for you. And it should change how we think. Look at what the writer of Hebrews says, so that we can serve the living God. I do not deserve Christ's righteousness, but I have it. Praise the Lord. So when I'm in, a conflict, in conflict with another person, and I look at that person, that person, if they were a believer, has the same imputed righteousness that I do. They too have a high priest. They too have a substitutionary atonement. They too have a perfect Savior. And it should change how I look at that person. It should change how I look at my children. If my children are not saved yet, I should grieve for them because they're lost. If they are saved, I should see where they're at and know that I was there too and help them come to where I am and not be mad at them because they're acting like immature people. We should be more mad at ourselves probably for how we behave. It should change how we deal with our spouses. My wife has Christ's imputed righteousness. She is righteous before God's eyes. How dare I judge her and her sin? My neighbor how dare I judge them? My member, my fellow brother and sister in the church, how dare I judge you if you sin against me? What do we do in conflict? Well, you have two people who God has done something for. It should change how that conflict happens because I should be able to forgive that person because Christ's sacrifice was enough. They should be able to forgive me and then we should be able to work toward reconciliation as two forgiven people. 
It should change how we live out our freedom. Just as Hebrews says that he has done these things so that we can serve the living God. How do we spend the hours of our days? Serving the living God can look like a lot of... You can serve the Lord scrubbing toilets. You can serve the Lord changing diapers. You know, you can serve the living God burning macaroni and cheese for your kids. You can serve the living God filing tax returns. You can serve the living God in your retirement. You can serve the living God uh, digging a hole in the ground. You can serve the living God planting crops and harvesting. You can serve the living God as a surgeon. There is no... I guess there are some occupations where it would be very difficult to say you're serving the living God. But I'm not going to get into any of those right now. But your occupation, your vocation, whatever it is that you do with your time, all of that can be serving the living God. You understand? You don't have to be in full-time ministry. I don't even know what that means anymore. Full, like full-time what? Like, like, can I sleep? Is it ministry when I'm sleeping? What about all the people? Do you know that the ministry is done by the body? The reason that I have things on that board out there, the reason I wanted to put pins out there is because I want you to see where the pin is and I want you to realize that wherever that pin is, that you can serve the living God there in your home and to your neighbor, wherever that is. And if that pin moves, well, guess what? You can serve wherever you stick the next pin. If it's in Oklahoma City, serve there. If it's in Toronto, serve in Toronto. If it's in Papua New Guinea, serve there. I don't care where it is. God is not over there going, oh, well, I don't know. I don't know if you can serve there or not. Wherever you are, serve the living God. Why? <laughs> Look at what he's done for us. Look at the righteousness. that we, Do you know that you can look at me and you can say, Brandon, you are righteous. I can look at you and I can say, you are righteous. Righteousness. Isn't that a wonderful word? God, through Christ, has won it for us. And it should change how we serve. It should change how we suffer. As I was reading through Isaiah 53, and I don't know, <clears throat> I have a cousin, Coral, and she has this famous phrase where she says, no one gets through this life unscathed, right? Um, we all suffer. Everybody. Every single person in here is either currently suffering has suffered, or will suffer soon. Yay! As I was reading through Isaiah 53, all the things that Jesus is going through, and exactly what he's going through as we're reading through chapter 19, and he has now been flogged, which is more physical abuse, I think, than all of us combined have probably ever endured, I hope. And it's going to get worse for him. He has taken on our infirmities, pierced for our transgressions. He has been wounded so that we would be healed. The Lord has laid the iniquity of us all upon him. Let me ask you a question. In the process of Jesus' suffering, does God still care about him? Does the Father still care about the Son? Has he abandoned all thought of him? Has he left him alone to suffer? No, he is not. And in your suffering, I want you to remember and to realize that a perfect Jesus died for you and for me. 
he took all of this suffering so that we could suffer in a different quality than the unbeliever. We can suffer in hope. Hope. One of the songs we sang talk about that hope, hope is an anchor. You need an anchor because it's grounded where you're not, right? A boat is floating. It's grounded in the seabed because up top is really rough. I need my anchor stuck firmly in Jesus because when suffering comes, the waves and the winds, they go. When a child is sick, when a parent is sick, when a marriage is struggling, when their finances don't meet up, when they're, we could get up here and make a list that would never end of all the stuff that we have to deal with. And in the midst of that suffering, I want you to walk through that suffering knowing that you have a perfect atonement. It's done. You have a perfect substitution in Jesus. You cannot earn that back. And you have a perfect high priest who intercedes for you and who intercedes for me to help us as we go through our day. Please pray with me. Lord, I love you. I love that you give us brains that are capable of thinking, brains that are capable of being stretched. And Lord, as we, as we come to, to sing to you, I pray that you would encourage each and every mind, each and every heart in here, Lord Jesus, to lay their burdens before you, to boldly approach the throne of grace that was won by your perfect sacrifice. We serve a God who is perfect. We worship a Jesus who is absolutely innocent because we were absolutely guilty. And you took all of our guilt and all of our infirmity upon yourself, Lord Jesus. Help us to pour our heart and our hurt and our trouble out to you today. Help us to pour brokenness out to you. We sang a song, Lord, that said, I know that nothing is impossible. If God in Christ can die for me, then nothing on this earth is too much for you. Give us the right perspective. As we enter into this time, Lord Jesus, help us pour our heart to you, speak to you, give you our burdens. And Lord, I pray for me and for every person in here that you would convict us, Lord Jesus, to live, to serve the living God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.